Good morning. It's good to see each of you here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open, open them to Mark chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 13. If you find the sermon outline helpful, there is one in um, your worship folder. The four Gospels, as you know, were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were written to give us the facts and the story of Jesus' life, as well as a chronological account, a sequence that started with Jesus' birth and ended at His ascension back into heaven after His death, resurrection, and after appearing to His disciples. Now, it's important to know that the Gospels, all of the Bible was not written just simply to give us historical facts. Scripture is written so that we will know how to live. Jesus never said, come and watch, right? He said, come and follow. Come and follow me. Help me, God, to, to, to know how you have called me to live. He says, follow in my steps. See my steps. Put your feet. Put my life in my footsteps. And so what, what Jesus is doing is he, throughout the New Testament, throughout his epistles, what God is doing is saying, we are called to live intentional lives. We do not, as God's children, get up and say, okay, today is my life. As God's children, we say, today, Lord, is the life you want to live through me. And what God has called us to do is to live, to be intentional in every conversation, every act, every word. Now, what does this mean? It means that we don't forget the basics. We hold on to the very basics that establish our relationship with Jesus. Sam Rayburn served as the Speaker of the House of Representatives for 17 years. And during that time, he was arguably one of the most powerful men in Washington. No bill came to a vote in the Senate without his consent, and he could orchestrate a filibuster. A filibuster is basically uh, a long speech that obstructs a bill from getting passed. He could do one of these without raising a sweat. He was a man who had authority and who had control and who knew how to use it. He served 24 terms as a congressman, but one of the things that stood out about him was that he never lost touch with his roots. He knew and he remembered what was important. Now, how did this happen? Sam grew up on a 40-acre cotton farm with 10 other siblings in Flat Springs, Texas. At 18, Sam headed off to East Texas Normal College. Well, Sam's family was dirt poor. Sam didn't even have a suitcase. When he went to school, he had to put his clothes together in a bundle, and he tied them together with a rope. And so him, for him, go to, going to college was a, was a big deal. Well, on the day that his dad drove him to the train station to put him on the train to go to college, he said they never said much on the way to the train station. But once they got to the train station and his dad stopped the pickup truck, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a fistful of money. And Sam says, when, when I saw that, he says, only the good Lord knows how he saved it. He said he never had any extra money. They, he only earned enough for his family and Sam and his 10 siblings to live on. He said, it broke me up, him handling, him handling that money, handing him that money. And he said, I often wondered what he did without, what my mother and he sacrificed to give me this gift. Well, before Sam boarded the train, his father grasped his hands and spoke four words that would echo in Sam's ear for the rest of his life. Sam's father, after giving him that gift, 
took, him, took his hands in his hands and said, Sam, be a man. Because of the sacrifice that Sam's family made to get him to university, and because of the integrity of his father, those words, those four words were a foundation point for how he would live. He would be, and he would live like a man. You know what God's concerned about? He is concerned about the fact that we live as men of God and women of God and teenagers of God and children of God. In Matthew 24, 16, Jesus gives you and I these words. He says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so this morning when we come to God's word, when we come to Mark 3, 1 to 19, we are saying, God, through this passage, grow me, help me find something else to get a hold of that will help me intentionally and purposefully live for you. Okay, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. We read in verse 1 that Jesus went into the temple. It says, again, he went into the synagogue. So we know that he had been in this temple before. He had been in this synagogue before. And it's possible that the synagogue was in the city of Capernaum. But Capernaum is a fishing village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the events described in verses 1 to 19 could have happened within a period of one day. Quite possibly, they were two or maybe even three days of situations, of circumstances, of things in Jesus' life that we're recounting here. Let's begin with verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man there was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. He's referring to the religious leaders to see whether he, Jesus, would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, he's talking to the religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save, or, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Iudema, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had disease, diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them <clears throat> not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to them, to him, those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bernoges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I'm going to break this passage down into two sections. In verses 1 to 12, we're going to talk about applicable observations from the life of Jesus, things we can learn from Christ from this passage that we can apply to our own life. 
At the end, verses 13 to 19, we're going to talk about three things you can do when you're making an important decision. Three things that Jesus did, three things that we can do so we make the right decision. Okay, number one, applicable observations from the life of Jesus. Number one, there are people with needs all around us. Now, verse one tells us that those who were, that among those in the temple, there was a man with a withered hand. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells us, or Mark rather, tells us that people were coming literally from all over because they had heard about what Jesus was doing. He was healing people of every, that had, no matter what their physical problem was, he was healing them. The blind were given sight, the crippled walked, the sick were made well, lepers were cleansed of their diseases. No sickness or disability was too difficult. Jesus instantly created new limbs and organs. He restored eyes, ears, hands, feet, and he returned bodies that were broken and bruised to full health and function. And Jesus didn't heal these people by kind of waving his hand over the group. He healed them personally. He looked the infirmed in the eye. He touched and spoke words of compassion to the lepers. And in verse 4, he calls to a man who had a withered hand, and he says, come here, come closer. I want to talk with you. Now, in this passage, we read that Jesus in this particular setting was healing people, and there were thousands of people. John MacArthur says that Jesus healed so many people that he literally re- removed sickness and disease and illness from, from Israel during the time of his ministry. Jesus came and he cared for people. And let me suggest, friends, that every day, wherever you and I are, there are people with needs. Now, let me, the New Living Translation takes verse 1, and it translates, translates it just a bit differently. The New Living Translation says this, verse 1, Jesus went into the temple, into the synagogue again, and noticed a man with a deformed hand. It says he noticed. See, what's the difference between being aware of people with needs and not being aware of people, people that have needs? It's whether or not we notice, whether or not we put ourselves in a place where we are aware of what is going on around us. Now, I'm not saying that you should meet every need of every person that's around you, but what I am saying is this. God has called us to follow in His footsteps. We are to care. So we are to be aware of the needs around us and say, God, what would you have me to do today? How would you have me care? What, what people do you want me to interact with? What words of kindness? What words of grace? What act of service can I do on behalf of following in your steps? Now, why is this important? It's important because of what Matthew says in his gospel, Matthew 25. At the end of time, when Christ returns, Matthew writes this, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say this, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that whenever we care, we're not just ministering to the individual. We are acting. We are, we are as, it's as if we are doing that very thing to Jesus. We are being his representatives. We are following his footsteps. We are following in his path. So again, as we begin each day, we might be wise to ask this question. Lord, who would you have me help today? 
How would you have me help them? What good can I do? What if we made every day a purposeful caring day and say, Lord, all I want to do is be aware of who you would have me engage in today and show your love for, encourage, and build up. There's a quote attributed to John Wesley that says this, Do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can. Be aware, be ready, be available for God to use you. See, sometimes we, if you're like, you're like me, I walk through my day with my to-do list strapped on my belt. And I want to get the list done. I want to accomplish. I want to check it off. But in the immediate middle of that, I need, to have a, I need to have breaks so that as I'm doing what God's called me to do, I'm aware of what God, who God wants me to be. In the midst of doing, am I being who God wants me to be? Am I being aware that there is something much bigger than my job going on as I live each day? There's something much bigger than getting my to-do list done. Lord, would you use me? Number two, not everyone has empathy for others. Not everyone will share your commitment to God, to follow God and to care. In verses 2 and verse 6, we see that there were a group of religious leaders who were not at all invested in helping Jesus do the good that he was doing. They were not caring about the sick. They were not caring about the infirmed. In fact, what they were doing, they were not coming to be a part of the good Jesus was doing. They came into the synagogue in order to find something that Jesus was doing wrong to accuse them. Anybody here ever been accused falsely? Ever been set up or had someone come against you when you were trying to do the right thing? That's exactly what was happening. See, the religious leaders did not like the fact that Jesus was preaching and teaching and doing the things he was doing because he was threatening to them. The Jesus threatened their authority, he corrected their teaching, teaching, and he pointed out their hypocrisy. These were religious leaders that were driven by self-interest. See, friends, the enemy of doing good can at times be the advancement of ourselves. Always be weary of leaders who value their position more than their calling. If a leader is not serving, if a leader is not with the people he is serving, if a, people is, if a leader is not engaged and knowing the people that he is working with and Carol to care for, you need to ask the question, what's going on within that leader's life? We see from the example of Jesus, he didn't separate himself. He, was, he went where the need he was. He, he, he participated with people in everyday life. Ronald Reagan once said, there's no limit to the good There's no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. If you're concerned about just doing good and you don't care about using it as a means means for building yourself up and you're just out there doing good, there's no end to the good we can do when we're simply out there doing good because it's the right thing to do. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, in order to get attention. Boy, isn't that guy doing something good? He's warning against that. Because for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. The issue is, where do we want to get a reward? Do we want to get it here or there? Friends, I trust that we as a church are wanting to do good because it's, it's the right thing to do. Because God has done good to us. So we pass that on and we're waiting for the glory, man. We're waiting for the good to catch up with us, to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Friends, we will never, we will never be able to match, to do the good that will match the good that's been done to us by our God. And out of the overflow of this good, we do good to others simply because of the good God has done to us. Number three, this leads us right into it. It's always right to do right. Now, it's interesting. Jesus knew that the religious leaders were out to get him. 
Jesus knew that they were looking to criticize him. Jesus knew that he was, when, when he went in that temple and that, that dude with that withered hand was there, he knew that by healing that boy's hand that he was setting himself up for some pain and problems. He knew that what was going to happen. But you know what, friends, there's going to be times in my life and your life where we're going to have to choose to do the right thing when it costs us something. We're going to have to choose to do what's right when we know we're going to be misunderstood, when we are going to be criticized, when we are going to go against the flow. And I want to tell you, in our culture right now, there has never been a time that I remember when we, the principles that we believe in can be, can, we, we can take harm upon us or we can be criticized for believing in the basic tenets of what this book teaches. But the bottom line is this, it's always right to do right. So what did Jesus do? Jesus brought that boy forward and he asked a question. And I love it. I love this. It said he looked around at them with anger. Well, let me even go back. He said to them, and he's look, the them is the religious leaders, the dudes that are there to try to find something wrong with him. He looked at them and said, okay, let me ask you this question. Because they had all these laws about what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. Doctors couldn't work on the Sabbath. So they were saying, you can't heal on the Sabbath. It goes against religious teaching, the religious law, that much of which they had set up themselves wasn't a part of scriptural teaching. And he says, he looked at them, and I can imagine him kind of looking at each one of them. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. I can just about hear Jesus think, well, you're right, you can't answer that. You can't answer that because if you do, you're going to condemn yourself. You're going to get exposed for the hard-hearted people you are. And then we look down, and he looked around at them with anger. All these religious leaders, the people who are supposed to be representing God, he looks at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. The Bible says a lot about protecting our heart and keeping it tender keeping it tender towards people, keeping our heart tender towards God. The Bible, the, the Scripture teaches us that out of the heart comes the expression of who we are. So what is the condition of our heart? Have we gotten, have we become cynical and critical? Or are our heart becoming tender to what God wants to say? See, this is it, friends. God will change our heart as we let Him in. Remember the Apostle Paul? He used to be called Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a religious leader who was a top student in religious law. He was, he was taught by Gamaliel, who was a top religious leader. He, he came on the scene, Saul of Tarsus, and when he heard of these Christians that were following Christ, he was zealous for the law. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8 that he went from home to home, and if he found somebody that was, become, that was following Christ, he drug these people out of their home and put them in jail. Now, if you were a Christian, you did not want to see Saul of Tarsus at your doorstep. He was a mean dude, and he believed that he was keeping pure the Jewish faith by persecuting Christians. But on one, one day, his life changed. On the road to Damascus, God struck him blind. And you know what God said to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Why did you persecute these people in the city? He said, his, he said why do you persecute me? That is the identification Christ has with us, friends, the way that he, we live our lives through him. And, of course, we know that at that point, Saul went away. God sent a man to relieve his blindness, and he was a new man. History tells us that he spent about two years being discipled before he came back on the scene. He just simply went off radar and was discipled. 
And the Bible says, and you talk about the change of heart, here was a man who was angry, pulling people out of their homes, beating the whooping out of them, and just tipping them in jail. And later what he does, he writes this to the people of Ephesus, the church people of Ephesus, and this is what he says. He said, let all bitterness and let all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Here was a man who knew about anger. He knew about wrath. He knew about clamor. He'd been filled with it. But he'd been a changed man when Jesus came into his life. And he said, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. He was a different man. See, that's what God does. When he comes into our life and we give him freedom, he changes the soiledness of our life and creates within us the image of God. So what did he do? God's love, he addressed the need. He had the man hold out his hand and it was healed. And he silenced his accusers with his words and with his actions. You know, friends, if we, if you and I are going to be faithful to follow Christ, it's going to be because we understand his mission. It's going to be because we grasp the, the significance of what he's doing. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes these words. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who through, who though he was in the form God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't, he didn't, he came to be with us. He didn't remain God when he came to us. He gave up his rights. He gave up his privilege and he came with us. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on an earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the degree that we buy in with with Jesus' message of humbling ourselves, becoming a servant, being willing to serve, friends, you will always make more of an impact in serving than demanding. You will always make more of an, an effort by following truth and living it out by your convictions with a godly strength rather than demanding your way. And when you understand the power of God in you, your life will change because you will have bought into what Christ is, ab is, is about in our world. Early in the 20th century, William Shackelford decided to bring together a group of men who would explore the Antarctic. And the story of their journey is literally incredible. What their goal was to, to explore the Arctic by moving from the frigid Waddell Sea below South America, then they would travel 700 miles, 1,700 miles across the South Pole and end up in the Ross Sea below New Zealand. Well, their trip did not go as planned. They involved, they engaged themselves in, in weather colder than they'd ever experienced, in more snow than they'd ever seen, and more ice than they ever imagined. They were on their ship in the, in the Ross Sea, or in the Waddell Sea, and they began to encounter all this ice, and the ice got thicker and thicker until it encompassed their ship, they were, and they were trapped by ice. Their ship couldn't get out. And one of the sailors there said that he felt like an almond and a piece of toffee. That was what the experience was like. They were stranded in that ice for 10 months until their ship, on the pressure, because of the pressure of the ice, crushed their ship. And on November 21st, 1915, the crew watched as their ship sank in the frigid waters of the Waddell Sea. So what'd they do? Thankfully, they were able to save their lifeboats. And after 10 months, 
Shackelford put all but five of his crew in three lifeboats, and they made their way across 800 miles of rough sea where they found help. And what was so amazing about this whole story was that in spite of all the hardship, no one died, and there was no mutiny, no betrayal, no division, and no dissension. Why? Because every one of the men knew what they signed up for. See, if we as God's people know what we signed up for, Follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Love when, and, and love when you're not loved, care, follow me, obey me, listen to my spirit, absorb my word. If we understand that, there'll be no room, there'll be no place in the church for division or dissension or anything else because we will be focused on what we're supposed to be focused on. The ad that Shackelford sent out to get men for this expedition did not say this. It did not say men needed for expedition, minimum of five years experience required, must know how to hoist a sail, come work for a fantastic captain at a great wage with amazing benefits. See the country. Didn't say that. You know what it did say? Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Every one of the men that applied to that ad knew, ad knew what they were doing. Oh, may we as God's people know the calling of God as it truly is so that when trouble comes, we're ready for it. When disagreements come, we are peacemakers, that whatever happens, we're ready because we know what we've been called to and we have our eyes on the goal of hearing from our Lord and Savior, well done, my good and faithful servant. We know, and when we know, we can follow and we can obey. Number four, if you care about people, people will come. Jesus leaves the synagogue and he takes, he withdraws with his disciples to the sea and the crowds are getting bigger. He had people from the north, the south, the east, the west, all over. He had people coming over a hundred miles on donkey or camel or whatever they had, bringing their sick relatives. They were bringing their sick, their disabled, their deceased, filled family members and friends because they knew that if the sick person could just touch Jesus, they would be healed. The Lord's miracles were public and undeniable, and people kept coming. In fact, the crowd was so large, Jesus said, you got to get a boat. It was like a mob scene because people had brought Uncle Ed, who was blind, and they knew they had to get Uncle Ed to Jesus because if Uncle Ed could touch Jesus, then he'd be healed. The people were shoving and moving, and Jesus said, you got to get me a boat, man. I'm not going to make it out of here. I'm going to get crushed. But the bottom line is this, friends. If you care about people, people will, will come. You will have the opportunity to meet needs. Now, do you have to meet every need? No. But God, what needs do you want me to meet? And the other thing is expect the unexpected. Because the Bible says that whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. There are going to be some problems. In fact, the majority of the problems are going to be outside of your realm of experience. But you know what I found? I have found that when someone comes to me and the problem is outside my realm, I pause and say, Lord, what do you want me to say to this? I was talking to someone the other day, and I gave an answer, and I said, where did that come from? But I knew the Holy Spirit gave me an answer for that person. I don't have everything I need. You don't have everything you need. But there are going to be things you encounter. And here he's saying that, that, there, that some people were, were controlled by demons. 
And what Mark is saying, he's saying as Christians, we need to be aware that there, there is an earthly realm and there is a spiritual realm. That there are angels, that there is God, and there is an angel who fell called Satan and him and his minions are out to get us. And we need to be educated, we need to be aware, and we need to know how to pray. And this is the other thing. In the, the last song we sang about Jesus, there, he, there, he has no rival and he has no equal. Never think that Satan's power comes anywhere close to God's power. It isn't even comparable. God's power is so amazing, so, so, so powerful, the devil can't even light a candle in Jesus' presence to compare with his power. And we have been commissioned by God to be his representatives in helping meet the people and meet the needs of the people he brings. And when we do that, God will give us the answers. But what do we have to do? We have to notice and be available. Now, we're going to switch gears now, and I want to give you three things to do when you need to make a difficult decision from verses 13 to 19. Jesus takes his disciples, and he goes up on a mountain. And the specific purpose of going up in the mountain is to select, commission the 12 disciples that he has selected. So what does he do? First of all, what Jesus does, he withdraws from the normal. If you are going to make an important decision, you need to get away. You need to get away from all the normality of life. Jesus was, had gotten, he was getting away from all that had been consuming his time and his attention by getting away to a mountain. See, sometimes you and I find it hard to be alone. We find it hard to withdraw. We find it hard to get away from our schedules. We find it hard to get away from our demands. But when the time comes and you need to make a decision, you need to back away from whatever the reality of your world is and get in a place where you can be withdrawn, where you can withdraw and you can be quiet. What is the benefit of withdrawing? What is the benefit of silence? Let me give you three benefits of withdrawing, three benefits of silence in your life. Number one, silence or withdrawing allows you to focus without distraction. We live in a world of huge distraction. We got billboards, we got radios, we got TVs. Anybody got a cell phone? We got them. Distractions. We need to back away, turn off the phone, and be able to focus. Number two, silence and withdrawal can calm us as we recover from stress. Anybody here ever have stress? Things that are beyond your ability to, to handle and your, your emotions get churned up and, and away you go. I get so worked up just doing my day sometimes. I come home and Joy says, what is going on with you? And I've got to sit down and just get away from everything that has consumed me to be able to calm down and recover from stress. And number three, silence and being withdrawal allows God an entry point in our lives so that we can hear Him. See, sometimes we don't hear God because we don't make room to hear God. We got so much noise, we got so much other stuff happening that we, we need to create breaks in our life to get away from it and say, okay, God, I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to be quiet for a moment. I'm going to quiet my thoughts and I'm just going to listen. What do you have to say to me about this situation? See, if we don't do that, see, if you haven't heard from God, the question I would like to ask you is, have you put yourself in a place where God, if he spoke to you, where you would hear him? Have you discerned his voice so that when he speaks to you, you can respond because you've learned what his voice sounds like? And I've shared with you before that when Joy and I started dating, the first couple of times I didn't recognize her voice if she would call me. But the more, the better I got to know her, she'd say hello, and I knew immediately who it was. It's the same thing with God. When he, he can speak to us and we can discern it, but we have to be aware of what his voice sounds like. We have to be attentive. So when, oh, that's God. That's God. And we know and we can move ahead with confidence. So he withdraws. Number two, he prays. He prayed diligently. <clears throat> In Luke, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give their own account of Jesus' life. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark does not include that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, you'll have the same account. Jesus heals the man in the synagogue with the withered hand. And then in verse 12, he says, In those days he went to the mountain to pray, and at night he continued in prayer, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve. That is Luke's account. So Jesus withdrew, according to Luke, for the purpose of prayer. Now, if I ask you, how many of you pray before an important decision? you'd say, absolutely, we all pray. Of course I'm going to pray. If I ask you, how long do you pray? That might be a different, sec- a different answer to that question. It says that Jesus prayed all night. All night he continued in prayer. And we're thinking, my gracious sake, what will we pray about? I mean, pray for 50 minutes, pray for an hour, pray for 20 minutes. I can think of stuff. God, direct me, help me know, help me not to mess this up. What do I pray all night? Let me suggest this, friends. We prepare ourselves for the major decisions of life by getting, by praying with the intent of seeking God. See, when you and I pray, the greatest intent of our prayer life is to seek God. God, may help me to know you. Help me to understand you. God, change my heart. Change my character. See, the closer you are to God by seeking Him, the more least amount of distance you're going to have to travel in order to find out His will for any decision you need His help on. The bottom line is when we pray, the goal of our prayer is to zealously seek God. So this is not some legalism works thing. That is a matter of saying, God, I want you more than anything, so I'm going to spend time with you to get to know you. Yesterday at the car care clinic, one of the things I did, I hung out with the people, and I sat down with a couple in our, in our side Sunday school room here, and, I, and the longer I talked, the more I got to know them. I found out about physical ailments. I found out about life stories. And the more that I knew them, what? The more I was able to relate to them, and the more I knew what I could expect from them. It's the same with God. God is immense. We will never know all of God, but as we seek Him, it says if we seek Him in Chronicles, if we seek Him, we'll find Him. If we seek Him with all our heart. Now, what does that mean? The degree of our seeking will determine the degree of our finding. The degree that we seek God will determine how much of God we find. So our prayer life is not about asking God for an answer to A, B, or C. It's saying, God, I'm going to seek you. And in the midst of I'm seeking you, I trust you're going to give me direction for these areas of my life. Let me... Let me add to this something. And we're going to, uh, I don't know when we're going to be done. It won't be long. More than a decade ago, Anders Ericsson and his colleagues at, British, at Berlin's Elite Academy of Music did a study with musicians. And with the help of professors, they divided violinists into three groups. World-class soloists, good violinists, and those who were unlikely to ever play professionally. All of them started playing at roughly the same age and practiced about the same amount of time up until they were eight years old. That is when their practice habits, their practice habits diverged. Researchers found that by the age of 20, the average not professional players had logged about 4,000 hours of practice time. The good violinists totaled about 8,000 hours of practice time, but the elite performers, the world-class violinists, practiced 10,000 hours. Innate ability, you bet, it plays a role, but the key thing is the energy and time they gave to their passion. Neurologist David Daniel Ledevin says that the emerging picture from such studies is that a 10,000 hour of practice is 10,000 hours of practice is required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world-class expert at anything. 
Whether you're a pianist, an ice skater, a fiction writer, a basketball player, a football player, a chess player, even criminals, what you have, the number again and again, the number 10,000 comes up, and there's never been a case in which true world-class expertise has been accomplished in less time. So here's the question. Is prayer any different? Does it make sense that if we are seeking God for the purpose of seeking Him, not on the purpose of checking it off our to-do list, not in the purpose of getting rid of guilt, but we are coming to God and saying, God, I want to know Him. There is a correlation with how much time and energy we spend seeking God and the amount of God we find. If they seek me with what? All their heart, then I will be found by them. How much of our Christian experience, how much of our relationship with Jesus would be changed if we just said, God, I'm going to seek you. And in my midst of seeking you, I'm going to allow you to direct my life. See, is the goal the one problem? So getting a solution to the one problem is the goal. God, I want to see you so that every aspect of my life is saturated with your presence because you are my goal. God, you are my goal. You're the one I seek. You're the one I love. You're the one I want to be transformed with. Oh, how many of us believe that if we got to know Jesus intently, that it would resolve so much other stuff in our life? I was listening to a sermon tape last week by a man by the name of Larry Crabb, a guy that I've read his books. He has had such hardship. He battled cancer for 21 years. He said one son go through a horrible divorce. Another son was expelled from school two weeks after he gave the spiritual lectures there. How about that for a great, a great encore? And he said during all his struggles, he would get letters from one of his friends saying, well, you're going through a tough time. Good for you. I can hardly wait to see what God's going to do. I and mean, he wasn't real thrilled about those letters. But one day he realized, he said, I've always known that God was all I have, but I realized I didn't know him well enough to know that God was all I need. We know that God is what we have, friends. The question is, do we know him well enough to know that he's all we need? We are battling a culture that pulls us away from the knowledge of God. And number three, act decisively. Jesus withdrew, he prayed, he acted decisively. Three action steps. He decided. After he prayed, he knew he had to make a decision. He decided. He said, you are going to be my 12 disciples. Number two, he discipled them. Verse 14 says, he appointed the 12 so that what? So that he might be with them. See, discipleship is not about the accumulation of knowledge, it's about the transformation of character. He wanted the disciples with him so that they could be changed in his presence. It goes back to prayer. Friends, we are changed in the presence of God. We are changed when the Word of God gets to the heart of, and the heart gets the heart of God into our heart. If we want to know God, we, we, will, we will be with him. And we will make it a priority. And number three, he deputized. When I came on this point, I said, I love this. Anybody watch those old westerns? Where the sheriff's in trouble and he's after a bunch of bad guys, what does he do? He calls four or five people he trusts and he deputizes them. He chooses them and he gives them authority. That's what Jesus did with the disciples. He deputized those dudes. He said, man, you are now chosen and you have the authority of God to heal and to cast out demons. You are my representatives. Friends, I want to tell you, as we talked about at the early part of the sermon, we are to live intentional lives. We are to be used by God for His purpose. One illustration. Mark Batterson in his book, If, tells of giving a eulogy for a woman by the name of Jayana Beale. 
The memorial service was held in the caucus room for the Russell Senate Office Building, and Jayana was the administrative assistant in charge of constituent correspondence. It was not a position that people were wanting to get. There was no big line to get her job. But Jayana did it with grace. She did not have a position of power, but at her memorial service, it was packed with people who would have been included in the who's who of Washington. Her boss was a man who would later run for president a few years later, and he, along with countless others, shared stories of how Jayana's small act of kindness made a big difference in their lives. Jayana baked cookies, she sewed buttons, she sewed new interns the ropes, and she did it all in the name of Jesus. Jayana practiced the old adage that says, share the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. Martin Luther King Jr. made this statement. He said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven will pause to say, here is a great street sweeper who did his job well for the glory of God. Batterson went on to say that he knew such a person. She was not a street sweeper, but she was a custodian, and she inscribed on her mop the letters SDG, just like Sebastian Johann Mach, Bach did on his sympathies, sim, symphonies. The SDG stands for Solo Deo Gloria as an everyday reminder to her that she cleans for the glory of God. The final verses of this chapter give us a list of names. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, all the men listed there had one thing in common. They were ordinary men that Jesus called to work for his glory, his glory above. And let me close with this statement. You two are chosen. You also are called to do your work, to say your words, to live with your families, to care in your neighborhood for the glory of God, to do your work as representatives of Jesus. And as we do that, as we are faithful to this calling, as we remember our distinctiveness, as we don't surrender our, surrender the opportunity God has given, the world will know that you have been in the presence of Jesus. Please stand with me as we close. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, today we ask that you would give us what we need to live intentional lives. That no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our difficulty, no matter what our challenge or opportunities or lack thereof, that every day we would come and live for your glory. May we remember that we go nowhere by accident, that wherever we go, you are leading us, that wherever you are, that wherever we are, God, you have put us there. May we remember that you, O oh God, have given us a purpose in being wherever we are, and that the Christ who indwells us has something he wants to do through us. May we believe this, and may we leave with his grace, mercy, power, and love for his glory. Amen. Be blessed.